0: Carol Ann calling in from Minneapolis. Um, I'm here with oh, so we're all gonna say our favorite type of chip. I did this icebreaker at a work thing last week. So, um, Carol Ann and my favorite chip is um so uh my joke is I love all cheese. I'm fancy cheese is Velveeta, I like it all. And so uh sour cream, that like cheddary the ruffles. ruffles Ruffles sour cream and cheddar give me that fake cheese i'll eat it all right heather lead us go ahead heather hey that
1: is also my favorite chip so (laughs) we'll just you know go to go with that um i i am the person who i think that like pepper is spicy Mm -hmm. so like i i have like the wimpiest palate so you know people i can't even like smell talkies without like (laughs) breaking into hives and a cold sweat this is heather from provo and we are so excited to have Ronnie Joe Draper with us. Hello. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. My favorite chip. Well, see, you know,
2: okay. I, it, it really depends because mm. just on an everyday occasion, I'm a cool ranch Dorito every day. Right.
0: Yeah.
2: But if I'm on a road trip, and this is the only time I eat these is when I'm on a road trip. It's the sour cream and onion Pringles. Yum.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: So, I like the reconstituted potato chip (laughs) while I'm on the highway. Mm -hmm. Pringles are really good for travel because they don't get crushed. They don't. And then they just stay in that little tube. Mm -hmm.
0: Hands Hands are less greasy. Yeah. 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 Like so many good conveniences. Yeah. Um, I remember realizing like it's called Cooler Ranch because I feel like I ate them before I like read what it was and be like cool ranch cooler ranch like being confused at the title of (laughs) what is this flavor oh and then ramona
3: y'all okay my favorite i I feel like if i don't have like a favorite chip i feel each chip has a different occasion
0: right i Mm -hmm. feel like
3: okay So, like, if I'm feeling depressed, I might have something with, like, sour cream and onion. Mm -hmm. Or, But but I also think that maybe we should try doing, like, an episode where we try Caribbean snacks. That would be interesting for you guys to try out.
0: Totally. Because,
3: like, what what I eat in the Caribbean is so different from what the mainstream American chips are. It's hard to describe without you guys having them.
0: You so know like Canada has strange flavors, like ketchup flavored chips. Like, what is one flavor of chip that you'd say, or you're not sure which ones are strange oh. to a U.S. audience? Well,
3: we have we we have a like my favorite chip is actually called Chick and Chips, so it's literally mm-hmm. shaped like a chicken, like <laughs> like fries and like it's a piece of chicken, but it's a chip and it tastes like ketchup. and i love them them so much and i mean yeah other than that it's all the other imported brands but caribbean snacks is where it's at let me just say
0: that i'm excited to hear about that later awesome okay we are so excited for our guest ronnie joe draper so ronnie joe sorry i prefer carol ann sorry pause after ronnie um, tell us some about yourself, Heather, and I know you from different eras of our lives at the McKay School of Education. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know what you want
2: to know, but I um, I grew up mostly in Reno, Nevada, and that's where I studied um, my bachelor's degrees in mathematics and physics, and I became a high school mathematics teacher in Reno, and then I did my master's and my PhD in Reno. And then I moved out here to Provo um, to work at BYU, and that was in 2000. And so I've been here ever since. So I um, retired from BYU, I guess it's been maybe just a little over a year ago. And since then, I've been making movies. I just took a one-year professorship at UVU to teach some multicultural classes. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I'm just, we, we remodeled
0: the house. I've got a swimming pool in my backyard. I'm mm-hmm. living my best life. I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, with that journey, going from teacher to professor to activist filmmaker, filmmaker, um, those are some really big pivots in your career. Um, what are some, yeah, I'd love to hear kind of about, like, what are, I know that's, like, big questions, but what are some, like, right. Things that helped you make those choices to, like keep changing careers well i um
2: i i, I don't see myself really as a goal oriented person and i know like within mormonism that's uh-huh. just like, how do you live. live how do you think you're going to get Perfection. to see god again yeah. and um i i think that sometimes we can our goals can be in charge of us instead of us being in charge of our lives. Yeah. And so I've just tried to keep things really open, you know, and you know, I grew up um you know I went to head start, which you know that's a, that's preschool for poor people. And um and that's a very common thing for native kids to to start off in head start. And I think to start off and head start, I just, I I never dreamed that I would finish college. I never dreamed that that would be a possibility for me. So then after I got my bachelor's degree, like everything else has just been gravy. Like I, I don't know. And so I just Mm -hmm. have been really open to whatever anybody sort of asks. And I just go, yeah, I'll give that a whirl. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you know, that's not to say I haven't worked hard or I haven't been a little bit strategic in the way that I go about my life, but I've been really open to possibilities. And after I became a full professor at BYU, um, I, it, it kind of coincided with um, I mean, a, little, a little while after becoming a full professor, I, I think that's right around the time, like I had a hysterectomy and I just, it was like lots of things were changing and Mm -hmm. I just was like, I'm just, I'm only doing weird things from now on. I'm just, Uh just sign me up for weird things. And so that, that really opened me up to, to things that came my way, you know, to, to be on the ACLU board here in Utah to, um, you know, people asking me to help with film and to me then directing film, it just, it just opened a lot up. If you open yourself up to weirdness, you
1: will you will have a fun
0: life.
1: I love that. You know, having just seen the Barbie movie with Weird Barbie, that yes, I relate to Weird Barbie hard, like like a really like we all came away like being like weird aspirational, like we're Mm -hmm. all aspiring to be weird. I I want to know when you, because I know you so much for your advocacy. Mm -hmm. Like that's where I was sort of first introduced to you and your work. And I am wondering if you've always been an advocate or like, what was that journey? I don't, I don't know that
2: I always saw myself as an advocate. I think that um, I think I definitely went into teaching with an idea of being an advocate. I went in thinking, I want to be a teacher who works with um, especially Brown and Black children who maybe don't see themselves in um, in STEM places. You know, they don't see themselves doing mathematics or science or engineering, and and so I certainly had that. You know, I, I had I had a sense that um, that sometimes we relegate um, our poor teachers to working with kids with greater needs and then we we put like our whatever experienced expert teachers in like AP Mm -hmm. math AP calculus and I didn't think that was fair I I felt I I thought that 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 seemed like an injustice to me and I wanted to be I wanted to be kind of teacher who aspired to work with Young people who needed outstanding teachers, and so I guess in that way I think that I was an activist. You know that 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 kind of set me on that path, and I was always very much in the face of my principal. You know, (laughs) making demands for my students that um, that other people maybe wouldn't be um, being loud about. So I think that there's, I think that there's that. Um, Later on, we took in um, a kid who was being, um, was coming out as queer and was not having a safe place in his own home to do that. And so then we took him in and then that for me really, that also coincided when I started teaching more multicultural classes at BYU. And I was just like, let's do this thing. We're I, I'm, I'll show up to the marches. I'll show up to wherever. And um, and, and that that also is when things kind of ratcheted up for me. So it's only probably been the last twelve years I've been really in the activist mode. Hmm. I think if you do teaching right, like that's a it's a good activist place.
1: Yeah, it, but it seems like at a certain point you shifted from an ally to to kind of a leader and a mentor mm-hmm. and with with the queer community mm-hmm. uh, at BYU and 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 even sort of beyond to to mm-hmm. Utah County. Um, and what was that like? That was fantastic. I
2: um. I just felt like that the young people at b y u needed to have somebody who was one hundred percent in their corner, and I knew how to do that um mm-hmm. you know i also because of because of I'm indigenous and a woman at b y u then I also had a lot of um, black students um Latina students, indigenous students reach out to me as well and just say, mm-hmm. I just need to hang out in your office. I just need to be just need to be in a space <laughs> where I can be myself. I'm like, Yeah, bring her in. So um I and I I enjoyed that role and it it, it for me it felt it, it was mutually edifying because I also I also needed community. Um and, and those young people were willing to let me be part of their community. And so it was it was a really it was a gift for me as well.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Do you feel like the climate has changed in, like yeah, um what am I trying to ask? Do you feel like the climate has changed in the last like five to ten years where you feel, so you said in the last twelve years you've been more of an advocate mm-hmm. leader? And do you think it's like it forces like um, internal and external that helped you feel like you could be more open than you were in the past, or um, because I do. Sorry, this is a long question. You've been yeah yeah yeah. To, like a at first as a teacher, and then it changing. But um, I'm interested in like the forces that help you feel more open. To be more like loud and right. Taking I think that once I got
2: tenure, it was a lot easier. Mm. I mean, not tenure, but even even from. I mean, BYU doesn't do tenure; it does continuing faculty status. And then when I got promoted to full professor, you know, I had when I went to BYU, my my PhD is in curriculum curriculum and instruction with a focus in literacy studies. And and literacy studies are not it's not controversial like teaching children to read. Not controversial and and i worked in that area for um many years and i you know so i wrote books and did uh, uh, the bulk of my publishing and um and it was what was interesting was while i was doing the literacy stuff when i would go to conferences i would always sit in on the the meetings or the the presentations about um multicultural stuff how to work with diverse students how to um you know, what does social justice um, pedagogies, you know, what do those look like? And and I would sit there and I would feel a little bit guilty that I wasn't doing more for my people, that I wasn't. My work wasn't focused directly on um, marginalized populations, even though, you know, I could easily connect the work that I was doing to how we help um children particularly those children who maybe don't traditionally have access to um education and you know to stem subjects and all those sorts of things i just i didn't feel like i was directly doing enough um my father who is Yurok, said you know we don't need you to, to be a social justice warrior just go mm-hmm. out there and be excellent just do your work that you need to do and and i felt just a little bit like I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. And then after I was promoted to full professor, then BYU asked me to teach multicultural classes. So now I was just like really in it. And then I felt, mm-hmm. I just had I just had more, I felt like I had more freedom. I think that if I had come into BYU, and this happens to a lot of um, women of color, professors of color, if their initial work is focused on marginalized populations they have a a more difficult time um, getting promotion and tenure um, because they're not seen as being serious or um, doing as thoughtful work often those the methodologies that go with working with black and brown um, populations um you know it has to it has to fit those those communities and so um The academy maybe doesn't uh, value those methodologies as much, and so that can also make it more difficult for them to... To make promotion and tenure. So I think in some ways it was a way of being saved that, you know, that I could, I proved my chops on, you know, on this really non-controversial area. And then when I moved over to doing more controversial stuff, I think I was protected a little bit because I'd already proven my value and my my ability to do quality work and all those sorts of things. Mm, Maybe I did a bait and switch with
1: BYU. (laughs)
0: well thank Um, you for not just staying comfy like i'm sure you could have stayed yeah yeah real real comfy in that one one spot so proud of you for taking on the weird and the uncomfortable and helping
3: yeah um i i've just been listening and soaking soaking all of this good stuff and um i i feel like if i if i was to be why you shouldn't on campus um I would have been one of the students that would have been in your office Mm -hmm. um and I've spoken about this many times on the blog that Utah often doesn't feel safe for me as a black woman Mm
1: -hmm. as
3: a black Caribbean woman as a black Caribbean woman with the accent as a black Caribbean woman with dreadlocks Mm -hmm. um and I know I would have been in your office probably (laughs) hiding out from all of it all the noise. I would have given you so many tipsy pops. You're just like, <laughs> here's all have all the chocolate. Have
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, and um you made a comment about, you know, um you were taken more seriously because you had taken that time to prove yourself by doing the serious work and then when you started to cross into the controversial things, you know, you were still given some grace. And I I I think about that through the you know LDS lens in membership when we think about membership when we have a person who's an other there's always a, a period where that person who is the other has to prove themselves so that they can then be taken seriously you know in the mainstream church and you know sometimes it comes at the expense of your own happiness your own joy your own sense of self so i i i just i'm kind of soaking everything i just want to listen and no but i
2: i hear what you're saying because i i think i mean i hope that you kind of heard that i felt a little bit like i was betraying myself
0: you know Mm -hmm. by not
2: being you know squarely from the get-go doing work that that centered my communities and Mm -hmm. um you know, and and you know, I I can appreciate saying, well, you you know, you know, whatever courage it took to shift away from that and in and, and into more activist spaces, but in some ways it. I guess I needed to do that for me in order to um, stay true to my own identity. So it didn't, I don't know that it felt courageous, although, you know, my husband and I did have conversations about like, this is risky. What you're doing is risky. And, you know, are we prepared to be fired? Are we prepared to be sanctioned in some way? And, and we, you know, we had to weigh things out and, um, and I, I don't regret any of the moves that I made in terms of standing up for communities because, you know, I think it's, it's also necessary to say, you know, yesterday was national coming out day. I'm also queer. And that was something that I did keep very quiet about at BYU. And, and, um,
1: you know, and I don't, I, I think that. And again, let me just interject something here. I am coming to realize that coming out can even be a privilege that there, there are people who cannot come out because it's not safe. It's not safe. Like if you can lose your whole livelihood from coming out, it's not safe. And and that's just, ah! Anyhow, I just had to right. So It's not
2: just about being, oh, you know, I think that when we talk about, like, safety, and we talk about, like, you know, being safe in a particular conversation, I think a lot of folks, especially white folks, are like, oh, no, I, I felt discomfort that I don't feel safe. Like, no, you're still <laughs> safe, because see how you didn't lose a job, or a house, mm-hmm. or yeah. access mm-hmm. to education, or um, you know, whatever. So yeah, safety, I mean, that does I mean it's, like, literally safe. And um,
3: yeah,
2: and so yeah, that you know, again, I think that becoming an older person, you know, I just, I really wanted to. To to live as truthfully as possible.
3: Yeah, uh, that's amazing. I I feel like if. Um, the closer you get. Away from whiteness, there's a level of unsafety that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a level of discomfort that's always with you. So you kind of are the person is constantly watching their back. Mm-hmm. Is this going to get taken out? Is this going to make the big, the big conchals come for me? Is the police going to be knocking at my door? No, we No, like, I was. I, that's just but... like a really far out generalization, but. You know, there's a certain level of anxiety that goes within being the other, mm-hmm. and it doesn't really, truly ever go away.
2: No, I was just on a, I was, I was on a trip with my film. We were on our way to um, Europe country, and something like a thousand mile drive from Provo, and um, and everybody in the car was a person of color. There were two of us were. Um, indigenous. There was a black woman, and there was um, a Thai Asian person with us. And there was a, a vehicle pulled up beside us, and I and immediately I said out loud, and and, and because I, of the company that I was with, I just said, "Friend or foe?" <laughs> so mm-hmm. friend or foe. Yeah. And um, people looked out the window, and they're like, mm, "Definitely foe, definitely mm-hmm. foe." And I think, I think understanding like what you were just saying, like you know, to be constantly, you know, checking and saying, okay, who are my friends, who are my foes here? And, mm-hmm. you know, where the where's the escape route and um who can I count on to be my helper? I mean, that's
0: yeah
2: always on my brain.
3: Yeah. And I I had a similar experience experience the first time I went to Utah in twenty eighteen and I got into a car accident and this was around the time everything with George Floyd was going on. Trump was in office. Everything was kinda nuts so and I remember getting into a car accident. The car hits on my side of the vehicle i my seatbelt pops out I am thrust forward but enjoy the front seat. they're fine. The police comes on the scene and immediately I clam up. Mm-hmm. I'm in deathly amounts of pain, but my body is telling me this is not safe.
2: Right. And
3: I, my body blocks the pain out. It was only when I left America and came out to Barbados that the pain hit me. Like, it was like, oh, no, we're, mm-hmm. we're done. We're done. Mm-hmm. This is enough. So it's kind of that friend or fault thing always goes on in church membership, in our jobs. Um, you know, it, it's just something continuous for people of color, I feel like.
1: hmm Definitely. Ronnie Joe, I have another question for you. I have so sure. many questions. I'm going to try to limit myself. <laughs> <laughs> so your dad is Indigenous. Is that, is that? Right. So I would love to know, were you always, like, fully aware of your indigeneity, or is that something that you came to? Like, I want to hear a little bit about that journey, was, too.
2: Fully, always aware okay. of my indigeneity. Um, my father was raised by his grandmother, who spoke English as her second language. Her first language was Yurok. Mm. Um and he grew up in a way that was very like connected to the land. He gathered acorns. He fished and netted salmon. He he pulled eel out of the river. He um gathered the materials that she needed to make baskets and he just did, you know, all those sorts of things and I just grew up hearing all those stories about that and then we also I mean the first time I went back to the reservation I was I think 18 months old my mom was white she was from upstate New York so she was a little bit prissy
0: mm-hmm.
2: and wow. in the in the best ways but Um, she had me just dressed in this like little white dress, I guess, with with the the story goes, I had like little like, you know, white tights on. And I said, why didn't you tell her that was just going to be I was just going to. that wasn't going to work. I was just going to get all dirty. And he, and he, my dad says, I tried to tell her, but there was no telling her. Um, But so I grew up going back to the reservation very, very frequently, at least once a year, sometimes more frequently than that. And spending weeks at a time there um, swimming, gathering blackberries, being with my grandma, being with my cousins, with my aunties. Um, And so that's been always part of my, my life and my identity.
3: Mm That's amazing. I I don't know. I, uh, I met someone who was indigenous. Um, who made these beautiful earrings for me. Um, that I still wear at every big occasion. So I wore them on my graduation day. Um, and what I find beautiful about the indigenous community is there is. I don't know. There's something that connects. If you are I'm just gonna speak for myself. I'm not gonna speak for every black person. Um I remember driving up to graduation and I'm passing the Blackfoot reservation or as far as you can get to it. I like I just felt this very like soul connection. It was like I almost heard drums in my head. It was like, oh my Mm -hmm. gosh. I don't know to explain this to somebody else they're like what the hell is she talking about no but...
2: i get that um you know and i and i think i'm i'm really you know i have this experience of being on the land where my people have been for thousands and thousands of years you know mm-hmm. that i'm walking on the same river touching i i just think i'm I'm touching willow um, bushes that my ancestors have touched. Our, our DNA are mingled in that, in that space, you know? And um, the last time that we were going up to the, to the reservation again to film, we were, you know, driving, driving, driving. And as soon as we turned on the road to, on the reservation to go toward the cabin that my father owns, I felt like a piece i could i guess feel it. I was just like, "Ah mm-hmm. i'm home and then um and then a little bit later the my my co-director um who isn't in um your rocker in and, and just said to me, "Did you feel that?" And I said, Mm -hmm. I did feel that, but I thought it was just me. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they were like, no, I felt it too. So there is something special about being in those spaces.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Okay, you've talked about it a little bit, but tell us more about the movie you made. How did you get involved? And then what are you working on now? Yeah, so I
2: I initially got involved with um, some folks who were doing a movie on – on Navajo lands and they were doing um making a movie called Scenes from the Glittering World. And they needed somebody with an education background and also someone with a, a background, an indigenous background to because there were white men making this movie um to kind of keep him in check and i said well i can help you out but, you know i'm not dine i'm you know you just can't have any indigenous person uh-huh. that
0: we're not like insert here leg- yeah legos you know yeah.
2: um but I i did what i could do there and i think that's a be- it's a beautiful film and, and and it's very well done um and it's available on your pbs app to Ooh. to view
0: good to know um
1: hey, say the name of it again
3: scenes from the glittering world Okay. Oh, nice.
1: I'm gonna watch that. And then um
2: and then I got involved with um Jen Lee Smith and Marissa Leela, and they are both filmmakers. Um Jen Lee helped produce the um oh Jane and Emma movie. And mm-hmm. um and they were already being interested in um fire and 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 they ended up somehow getting getting in touch with some folks from Whitchpec which is on Yurok lands, which is the village that's the my family's village oh. and or the you know it's not we don't own the village but that's the village where my family um originates from and they were like well we're doing this movie and we know you've done then this other movie with so and so and so maybe Do you think that you could help us out? I'm like, yeah, I think you need me to help you out. Like, (laughs) you you should have called me sooner. Um, And at first, it was just going to be more like a consulting producer kind of a deal. And then um, I always just teased that I just kept bringing too much to the table. So then I just kept getting promoted every time we Mm -hmm. were in conversation until I was uh, a co director and the writer. Um, We completed that. That film that's called um, Fire Tender. It's a short and it's about the practice of Yurok people putting fire on the land as a fire management tool, Mm. doing large broadcast burns throughout the forest. And we center the film around Margot Robbins, who is a Yurok woman educator um, who has been um, kind of at the center of that work, making bringing fire back. Um we just sold that we're to um p b s the world um state channel and so that should be on p b s within the next year um thank you yeah and so we got funded for that from national geographic society and from vision maker media and um vision maker media is a is a um group that just that provides funding for indigenous films and indigenous filmmakers and, and mm-hmm. you know indigenous stories and now we're working on the feature-length film of Good Fire and and one of the things that's happening up in Wichpec is they're building a fire station that's devoted to putting fire on the land Whoa. rather than devoted Watching to yeah. extinguishing hmm. fire So we're we're looking at, at, you know, what's involved in in creating this kind of um,
1: fire center.
0: Very, very cool. Um, Okay, so on the same vein, what are some like what would you consider required like reading, listening, podcast, movies, books to help people um, build up their understanding about LGBTQ communities, indigenous communities? probably the more mainstream the better but you can also get really specific. I'll take some notes. Um but by mainstream I mean just so like easier to access?
2: But yeah, I'm, yeah, the, um yeah, um there's a there's a relatively new podcast um put out by um Illuminative which is a um group committed to indigenous storytelling and they have a podcast called American Genocide that you know goes through sort of the history of um genocide in the um in the Americas mm-hmm. um especially in North America and the US um that's quite good um this
0: land okay yep i listened is, to that one.
2: Is another good one and it's by i think the, the people who um the crooked media group does that and season 2 is completely devoted to um Iqua, the in, the Indian Child Welfare Act, oh.
0: um,
2: and you know that was just um, a case that was being considered in front of the Supreme Court, and um, against I think all odds, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of um, Indigenous peoples, which I was shocked. But that, um, but that podcast season two was all up to the lead up so they didn't didn't have the you know they didn't know what was going to go down with the Supreme Court but it was just like the lead up and to understand why we need the Indian Child Welfare Act Mm -hmm. so that was good Um, LGBTQ stuff you know one that is just fun to listen to is uh, that I've been listening to is Handsome Um,
0: I don't know this one
2: it is um it is, a, it is a, a podcast with um Tignataro, Fortune Feimster, and um, May, oh, I'm, I'm spacing on their last name, but the three of them, you know, they're three um, comedians, and they just chit-chat about stuff, and what I like about it, I mean, they're all queer, but so it's not really like an activist kind of a space, but just like if you just want to chill with some queer people and laugh, yeah. um, that
1: is a a lovely, lovely podcast. Oh, I love that suggestion because you know one of the things that we feel like is anytime it's like activism, like, you know, there's all the stereotypes of like the angry feminists and right, right. You know, the sad indigenous people. And, right, you know, right. like, and, and there is heavy stuff, but like, I love when there's like just joy and fun in, in spaces. Like, it's like the body keeps the score of the pain, but the body also has lots of joy. Yes. The, the body holds,
2: um, you know, ancestral truth and joy as well. Mm. So that's, that's a fun one, just because like this today, I was listening to it and Tig Notaro was talking about, you know, she's, she's gay, she's married to a woman. She's got twins who are maybe like seven or eight years old. And she was just like, we had to come out to our children. We oh. didn't, and, and you know, like we're gay. And then the, the kids are like, you're gay.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then, and, and just how they had to negotiate and kind of explain to their seven-year-olds that yeah like see how we're two women and we're your moms and they're like he's like oh that's interesting so I just I, I I think just like kind of the everydayness of yeah of living in uh, a queer body I I think it's it's fun to listen to
0: thanks so much for these recommendations um, Heather, you had a question about an event that Ryan Joyce did. Put on. Okay, so
1: I am like a total. I'm a total NPR junkie. Everything I learn, I learn from NPR. That's it's good. It's like the background noise of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I have a radio in my bathroom, and it died. And I got online with Target, and they do not have a single clock radio like in Target. They don't sell that anymore. Like that's, that's how the olden old I am. days things. Yeah, yeah. So, anyhow, and this spring, they had one of their little, they kind of sometimes do like little, like NPR so awesome. Here are some of the fabulous stories we bring you. And they kept talking. Bronnie Joe kept being on the radio, and I'm like, I know her. I know her. <laughs> I know someone on NPR. I'm talking about Lavender Prom at BYU. So, I want to hear about Lavender Prom. It was Lavender Graduation. Okay, Lavender Graduation. Sorry, sorry.
2: So Lavender Graduation is a ceremony that happens at a lot of institutions to celebrate um, LGBTQ folks who are um, completing their studies. And it was started by um, a woman whose first name is also Ronnie. And now I'm going to space on her last name. Um, But she started it because she is a queer woman and um, and at the time, she wasn't able to attend her daughter's graduation from university um, just because of, you know, all the rigmarole. And so she started a lavender graduation. She's a professor. She started a lavender graduation to give um, young people and their families a place to celebrate where they may not be accepted in um in the other places where graduation celebrations are happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so last year, um, well, you know, so in 2023, we had our second lavender graduation. The the year before that was the first year. And we partnered with the Out Foundation and with gurus um, in downtown Provo and the restaurant, the restaurant. And put that together and and um, and then we did that again this year out the out foundation wasn't involved um um dr dan Dan Barney, who was also a professor at b y u he's no longer there um he and I organized it and put it on and as a way to celebrate the graduates the queer graduates from b y u because it's not like b y u is going to put on a an official um celebration for their LGBTQ students who are graduating so we did that we also well during that ceremony we we um present them with a lavender um cord to wear with their mm-hmm. regalia um and it's just it's just a special time and and to just celebrate and, and eat food that gurus provides and It was. It's just a fun time.
0: Is it like family and friends, or is it mostly just the graduates? Mm -hmm. Everyone is it
2: graduates and then their families and and friends. So there's other, you know, maybe BYU students or other, you know, roommates or whatever. Um, But then there, you know, for there are a handful of parents there, Um, Mm -hmm. and that's always. I I love. I mean, I love hanging out with students anyway, but then I love to see their parents when they're you know, so proud and beaming. And, mm-hmm. um, and so that is just, just lovely. Thank you.
0: Do you know if it's going to happen this year for 2024
2: or? I mean, I think Dan and I are pretty committed to, to keeping
0: it going. Wonderful. Wonderful.
1: Do you have to keep part of it secret? Are you afraid that people are going to crash it? Like haters are going to like, you know, when they they decide they're going to light the Y rainbow Mm -hmm. and they have to keep it secret because otherwise like, you know, the national guards out there. Right. Right. Yeah. We're not, well, we're not doing
2: anything that would be considered um, too controversial. I mean, we don't have, I mean, I guess if we had drag Queens,
1: um, but even then, you know. But aren't the robes dresses? So isn't everyone really, if you exactly put on a graduation gown?
2: Yeah. Every, every, I, <laughs> as Ruth Paul says, everyone's born naked and everything else is drag. Um, yeah. So, yeah, um, we, it's a little bit tricky because I, I can't. You know, how do I access who how do I even know who all the queer students are? I I can't know that. And so I I put out like a Google survey to a lot of different spaces hoping that people will fill that out and that includes in that and that survey that includes the address where things are going down. We don't put the address out just because we don't need a lot of crashers, but we're more concerned I guess with people just like stealing our food. Um
0: <laughs>
2: and rather than making too big of a scene.
0: So, Thank you so much for like crafting that and creating that space so that there can be those happy happy celebrations and full being for, and people can be in their full selves. Yeah. Instead of the sequestered shell side.
1: So
2: Right. Yeah. yeah, you know, they come and they're dressed to the nines and
0: it's it's really pretty awesome. Mm. Thank you so much for your time, Ronnie jo. Um, Ramona, Heather. Thank you. Thank you. Um, any parting words, parting gifts as we um, are going out? Yeah. I'm excited to see
1: your next adventures. I'm excited to see, you know, all the, the different chapters that are, you know, awaiting you and awaiting us. Okay. I'm excited, too, because I just I, I'm.
0: Like, who knows what's going to
2: happen next? So yeah. I'm looking forward to it as well.
0: Yeah. So a question I um, thought about earlier but didn't share. So this is my last question to you. And I know sort was trying to wrap it up. What advice would you give to someone as they are transitioning to their different career, whether they're, like, early career, mid-career, if they needing to take a leap of, like, I don't like what I'm doing or, like, should I? Right. Like often I meet people who are, like, I don't know if I should do X, Y, Z or not. And that risk Right. Me. Well, I think that we and I think this is particularly difficult for
2: women, but I think that we don't um, we don't appreciate the skills that we have
0: mm-hmm. and
2: really how transferable those are to um, another circumstance or situation that we might be in, you know, so um, as a documentary filmmaker. I have really relied heavily on my skills as a qualitative researcher and um a writer of scholarly work and that that I can those skills are transferable to what I'm doing in documentary film. You know, I don't I, I don't know how how to operate a camera or whatever, but I I know how to collaborate with people, which is also something else that I learned in as being a professor and, and and collaborating with other people on research projects, all those skills are transferable to these other situations. And so, I think that we 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 need to trust that we have skills and abilities that um that that we can rely on, and that those are going to be useful and valuable in other settings, and not just in the one setting that we thought we were preparing for. Mm. So
0: we're 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 we're
2: smarter and more able than we think we are. Mm,
0: thank you for that. Thank you for those wise, wise words. Um yes, amen. you were someone who I you were my um teacher education professor. I taught for five years and then left. And I am no longer a teacher, but then was like, wait, we segregated schools because we segregated housing and then went urban planning. I, and so But I think um, I mean I
2: think a degree in education, like, you know, you're learning how to plan design events manage a whole bunch of people like those are beautiful skills that transfer to other and
0: and as I was leading teaching I felt so burned out that I was like I don't have anything so everything you said I was like I had to relearn that and that's now my pep talk that I've shared with other friends when they've left teaching they're like what do you do next I'm like you have transferable skills like because it's Mm -hmm. so thank you so much for using those words because I think it's so relevant and especially, yeah, as you said, for women, because isn't the thing where it's like women, when they read about a job description, they're like, Oh, I can't do 90%. Like I can't do, I can't do 60%. I'm, I'm only I 40% shouldn't qualified. And men are like, ah, yeah. I've
2: nailed the position. <laughs> have the
0: confidence of a mediocre yes. white man. I mean, well,
1: and, and for
2: the all whole the whole world
1: hired Trump. How oh much? Well, and for all, you know, as someone who was, a primarily a stay at home mom for years and years. And then, you know, went back to school and all of that, like, whatever you're doing in your life, especially Mormon women are amazing. We have so many crazy, amazing skills that we don't even really value. Right. Um, I think I've told this story before about my friend Pandora Brewer, who says that, you know, on Krypton, Superman is like, whatever, he's not a big deal. But you take him out of Krypton and put him on Earth. And he's like, amazing. Mormon women are that way. You take them out of their little world. People are like, what? You can put on a dinner for 200 people for three like, dollars. Yeah. what? You, you know, you know how to like speak in public. You can, you know, do all of this stuff. And it's like, yeah, everybody can, but they can't. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not everybody can do what we can do
2: right right but i think women are used to leaving uh leaving their um jobs as a stay-at-home mom and then trying to move into other spaces and being told that they're that they have no skills that they've been out of the workforce and when in fact you know i tell people like when i was a stay-at-home mom i was like breaking up fights and stuff like that's a
1: that's a transferable service. skill yeah
2: that's i was because... you know yeah
1: diplomacy it's like <laughs> negotiation
2: right conflict management skills I, I got it
3: everything yeah.
1: sanitation all, of it.
2: Oh, all yeah. of it
3: yeah I feel like if I needed this pep talk of going into the workforce um being a caretaker from my grandmother who had dementia being mm-hmm. worse to take that role mm-hmm. and then going into the workforce and everybody's like oh what were you doing for five years I was, like, taking care of a dementia patient.
2: Keeping an actual human alive?
3: Yeah. yeah. And it's, 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 like, this blame thing. Like, why aren't you here? Why aren't you this place? But we have so many skills during the time that others might not, right? you know, consider it productive. So I'm really grateful for that little
1: pet talk. Thank you. Yeah. And women are learning how to transfer this stuff into their resume. Yeah. Like finding really professional ways of owning their skills and talents. Just because you didn't get paid didn't mean you didn't do a job. Right. If you were the Weeblos leader,
0: um, yes. you can
1: work in corporate America.
0: Yes. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. That is a perfect line to end on. Thank you so <laughs> much. Okay. Well, thank you. Have a everyone. Thank you so thank much. You.